right on the spot. And it looks like we're going. Okay. So as I can't remember if I said, my name's Eric Dixon. I'm the head of emergency medicine here at the University of Iowa and director of emergency medical services. This is my favorite lecture to give every year. I'm not kidding. I, I must do a talk on shock uh, to, uh, you know, 50 times a year. Do it to the fourth year students uh, almost every month, to the residents uh, in different places, and CME talks. It is my favorite topic to talk about, and this is my favorite group to talk about it too. I'm going to start by telling you a story I heard this morning in terms of one of our air care nurses went out to a hospital that will remain nameless. And I'm glad I wasn't flying today because I think my head may have exploded and, uh, if I had seen what they saw. And they went out to pick up uh, a 52-year-old guy with septic shock in an ICU for three days. And uh, he had a blood pressure of 70, was on max pressors, so things to constrict the arterioles and increase systemic vascular resistance. And uh, no urine output whatsoever. And the... Um, I'm not crying, I really am hoarse, but <laughs> and, and, and she went, no urine output, and looked at the fluid that the, the gentleman had received over the course of you know, whatever time he had been there, and it was it run at 125 to 250 per hour, about maintenance dose fluid. And there he was, they were squeezing down his arterioles, trying to get his blood pressure up, because that was the goal. And uh, the air care nurse said, I've got to improve this guy's tissue oxygenation, quote unquote, that's what... The, what they said. So th that's what our ear care nurse is doing, and that, that's an incredible advancement uh, for them to be thinking along that line. And that's the way you should be thinking when you see a patient like that, because you all will in your careers. I need to improve this guy's tissue oxygenation. And then hopefully at the end of this talk, you'll be able to do just that. And you'll know what that ICU at the outside hospital did wrong prior to this. Uh, I want you to understand what shock is and what tissue hypoxia is by the end of this. I want you to understand the primary, primary determinants of cardiac output and their relationship to one another. I want you to be able to differentiate shock clinically. So this is getting in there, what would you do on the street if you're a paramedic or uh, in the ER if you happen to be an ED doc. And then I want you to be able to apply appropriate therapies for shock. So first, we've got to start with the definition. What is shock? And you can go out and you'll find 10 different definitions in some societies like one versus the other. And so acute circulatory failure with inadequate or inappropriately uh, distributed tissue perfusion resulting in generalized tissue hypoxia. Don't remember that one. Uh, I, everything has to be dumbed down for uh, an ER doc. Low blood flow, low tissue oxygenation. Two things, two things shock is. Low blood flow, low cardiac output, and uh, low oxygen concentration around the cell. That's what makes up shock. So as you know by now, I hope, uh, even before you got in here, oxygen is one of the key metabolic fuels of life. And although the vast majority of oxygen in the body is chemically bound to the hemoglobin and to the myoglobin in the muscles, it's really this stuff here in the tissues, in the extracellular space, that can be metabolized. And there is no active, unless they've discovered one, please tell me, no active transport system for oxygen into the cell. This is down a concentration gradient into the mitochondria. No concentration gradient, no mitochondrial oxygen, right? Not, you know, the difference with glucose is there is a uh, active transport system. 
So if this concentration of oxygen goes down uh, too low, you die. Really, from an emergency medicine standpoint, there's two things you die from. Shock, which goes to respiratory failure, and respiratory failure, which eventually goes to shock. And uh, that's kind of the common pathway to death for all of us, is you run out of oxygen. So with shock, you have the bl red blood cells slow down as they're going by that tissue that's eating up the oxygen, and therefore you have a greater extraction off the red blood cell, a decrease in this partial pressure of tissue oxygen level, a, a decrease in the oxygen here, a smaller gradient to drive it into the mitochondria, and you start to get uh, lactate production from anaerobic metabolism. That's shock. Cardiac output's down, tissue hypoxia, and now you have anaerobic metabolism. So the lactate level goes up. I had some great effects that are supposed to be kicking in right now, but uh, that's okay. I can do it without the show. Uh, the, so I, I think about PTO2 is the thing I'm trying to uh, get to, that, that nurse saying, I've got to increase tissue oxygenation. And there's really three parts of this. One, arterial oxygen content. If you don't have any hemoglobin, you're not going to get to carry any oxygen to the tissues, right? You've got to have that uh, chemically bound fraction. Cardiac output. So cardiac output and arterial oxygenation, you multiply those two, and that's delivered oxygen. And, and you'll hear me say funny sounds and things when there's a multiple choice uh, question coming up. So, so don't worry too much on, on writing down. Try to listen if that's the way you learn best. And so driving the oxygen uh, to the mitochondria. But metabolic demand is the other part of this tripod. If my metabolic demand is very low, I don't have to deliver that much oxygen to maintain that oxygen level in the tissues. If I've got a fever of 104, and I'm breathing 35 times a minute, and I'm a little kid because that takes even more energy, I got a huge metabolic demand, I better be able to crank up cardiac output way past normal levels in order to meet that metabolic demand. Oh, there it goes. Look at that, driving, delivered oxygen, <laughs> driving it to the tissues. This is bad. Oh, oxygen down. Okay, get that part. So there are only four things, four things that make cardiac output go down in the world of an emergency physician. And uh, this is first year medical school, right? So, uh, so we're going to keep it to those four things. And these are really... Then you'll learn all sorts of other stuff, and then it'll come back to clinical medicine, and there'll be four things again. Uh, four things that can make cardiac output go down or are the primary determinants of cardiac output. If we think of how the heart functions, you have to fill the left ventricle. If you don't fill the left ventricle, you can't get any blood flow out. Makes a lot of sense, right? The heart must contract. Contractility. Change in pressure over change in time, DPDT is how the, uh, uh, the cardiologist will talk about it, but contractility. So if you don't have contraction, it doesn't matter how full, full the left ventricle is, you're not going to get any cardiac output. And then heart rate. I mean, if you have a heart rate of two, you're in trouble. Uh, this has got to happen at a reasonable rate. So it has to fill, it has to contract, and it has to happen at a reasonable rate. And then... This is the tough one. This is the one that they screwed up in the ICU at the other hospital, afterload. So 
After load is going to be the tough one to understand. This is your peripheral vascular resistance, systemic vascular resistance. Heard those terms? This is really about the arterioles and how constricted they are. And it almost seems funny that you can dilate your arterioles to the point that your cardiac output goes down. I mean, think about this. You've got this wonderful four-lane highway here. Blood's just flowing out of the heart. No resistance whatsoever, right? And it's got to deliver that blood to the cell. But yet, sometimes we give drugs called vasopressors, dopamine, levofed, neosnephrine, um, to constrict that down in an attempt to make it easier for the heart to deliver blood. It doesn't make a lot of sense, really, when you think about it, when you look at at least this model. So I'm going to give you, uh, once again, the ER docs analogy. Um, we see a certain jaded population uh, of patients. So imagine I'm in Iowa, and uh, I decide, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, and I want to start a meth lab. Right? <laughs> so, hey, no. Better than sitting at home doing nothing, right? <laughs> the, um, and I go to the drugstore, and I'm, and I'm going, and I, well, I've got to get Sudafed, right? An alpha agonist uh, to use as a precursor. And I go to, uh, I'm going to say CVS, and everybody will know I'm from Boston if I say that. What, the, what is the, the one here? Walgreens. I'm going to buy all the Sudafed. So I go up to the counter with my blister packs of Sudafed, and I take it. And the uh, druggist happens to know that Sudafed is, a, is what you need to make your methamphetamine. And so they dial up the police. Oh, yeah, have a nice day, sir. Come again. And I'm walking out, and I see the lights and sirens. So I start running, and I'm trying to get rid of the evidence. So I'm eating the Sudafed, right? And the, and, the, and the police are just following the blister packs along to try to catch me. So I'm running, and my heart's pounding. Now, at first, I, I got a normal blood pressure, a normal afterload. The heart's going along just fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm beating just fine. But my arterioles start to clamp down. These are alpha agonists. And the heart's squeezing harder and harder and harder trying to get blood out, but the resistance just goes up. My pressure's 300, you know, I'm turning red, squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. Eventually, you'll get so much resistance that the heart won't be able to pump. I mean, that sounds reasonable, right? All right, so, I, you know, I do my time for the Sudafed thing. I get out of prison, and, I, and, I, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to have the time of my life, you know? So um, I hear about this new drug out there called uh, Viagra. And, uh, you know, you can get it on the internet for $1.74 a pill. I know because I get 50 emails a day that tell me that. Uh, I don't know why that is. But, so I, I go and I get my bottle of Viagra. And Viagra vasodilates, right? And I also develop coronary disease from the alpha agonist, so I have a bottle of nitroglycerin with me, which blocks the degradation of uh, the NO, or actually produces the NO, and the Viagra blocks the degradation of it. So I take the bottle of Viagra, and I'm going to the clubs, and I'm looking for uh, the lucky lady, so to speak. <laughs> and I start to get chest pain. So I take my nitroglycerin as well. And what happens to my arterioles now? They dilate, and they dilate. The exact opposite of my Sudafed experience, and they dilate. And so. At first, what's the heart saying? This is easy, right? This is nothing. This, I got no resistance whatsoever. My blood pressure is 60. My blood pressure is 50. 
Is it going to go to 30 and just have a normal cardiac output? It's not. It's going to start to drop. My cardiac output at some point is going to drop. One of the reasons which we're going to ignore is because the venous side is also dilating and there's going to be inadequate um, uh, loading of the heart. But we'll ignore that. But if you get blood pressure too low, my coronaries come right off the aorta. And if there's not adequate coronary perfusion pressure, my heart can't pump, right? I can't get the contractility. So when you start playing with SVR, it's easy to increase heart rate. It's easy to increase preload. Um, not so easy to increase contractility. At least we have ways. But when you start playing with SVR, systemic vascular resistance, there's a plus and a minus. Go too high, you're given extra resistance that the heart often weakened by the time they get to our care, has to, resist, has to pump against. If you go too low, the blood pressure goes too low, you let it go too low, coronary perfusion falls off and the heart stops, to have, stops having adequate cardiac output. So this is kind of a night. So I don't talk about it really being as a low systemic vascular resistance. I think you want to make it just right. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about how to make it just right and, uh, and how you can measure that. Four primary determinants of cardiac output. Heart rate, preload, contractility, and systemic vascular resistance. Patients in shock have a decrease in one of these things, basically. Little bit of a simplification, but, but at this level, if you remember this, you've done better most than my residents. <laughs> at my last program. So when we talk about shock clinically, we don't always talk, we don't talk about, oh, they have a low preload shock. We talk about it in terms of a classification scheme, which is hypovolemic. So you get a low preload, you have hypovolemic shock. If you have a uh, decreased SVR, you have a distributive shock. It's the distribution of blood that's the problem. If you have a low heart rate, cardiogenic shock, decreased contractility, again, cardiogenic shock. Uh, now, there's a special shock, uh, which in some ways is a hypovolemic shock, but because the left ventricle doesn't load, that's the real problem, called obstructive shock. So if I, uh, I, I had to actually drive from, um, from my wife's, uh, my in-laws in Boston to, uh, to Iowa just a couple weeks ago, and with two dogs, a rabbit, and a cat, by the way, as, my, as the rest of my family flew. 120 hours. So I get a DVT, right, from venous stasis. Let's just say. Um, <laughs> I, nobody would hope that here, I, I would think. Uh, I get a DVT and it flies up my leg, makes it into the right atrium, the RV, stops my pulmonary artery. How's my cardiac output doing? Not too good, right? Because the blood can't get from the right side to the left side. And I talk about it being like hypovolemic because the left ventricle, if you look on echo, uh, is, not, is not full. If you look on an ultrasound of the heart, my jugular veins are out like this because the blood's trying to get over. It wants to go to that left ventricle. <laughs> Don't go to the light. But it's trying, but it's, uh, it can't get there because there's an obstruction. That's obstructive shock. If I get a pericardial effusion uh, and there's a big, tense pressure around the heart, then the heart can't expand and let uh, blood into the left ventricle. That's obstructive shock. Tough one to make, tough diagnosis to make sometimes. So causes of hypovolemic shock, 
bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. I see a patient in hypovolemic shock, uh, I'm looking for a source of the bleeding. See trauma, it's obvious because it's on the floor. But, uh, it's, but I mean, it's really bleeding uh, that you've got to think of. Severe dehydration can cause it. Third spacing, which is uh, if you have a low oncotic pressure, it can leak into your peritoneal cavity, for example. Uh, and classically not in included in there, but has to be considered sepsis. Sepsis is uh, the titanic of shock because you really get all components uh, as a problem in terms of they're always hypovolemic. There's contractility problems. The SVR is uh, low in adults, but high in kids sometimes. Uh, so it's really the, the truly challenging one when you get an infection that causes uh, you to go into shock. Common causes of cardiogenic shock, myocardial infarction and ischemia. I see a patient in cardiogenic shock, I'm thinking MI. Even if it's a low heart rate and it's an otherwise healthy person, I'm thinking that they're having an MI to messed up the conduction system. Cardiac arrhythmia uh, is certainly a, a cause as well. Um, atrial fib at 220 or atrial fib in people that need the right atrial kick to fill the left ventricle. Toxicologic um, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers uh, that will knock down contractility. Uh, cardiomyopathy uh, will do it as well. Viral infections uh, that uh, will cause the myocardium to stop contracting normally will also give you cardiogenic shock. Causes of distributive shock, spinal cord injury is an interesting one we see uh, every, every once in a while is that you'll have a loss of your sympathetic tone in the vasculature. So the arterioles, which are usually controlled by the sympathetics, will lose that tone and dilate, and you'll have a distributive shock. I gave you my Viagra nitrate story of calcium channel blockers that are focused on the arterioles and not the myocardium, and sepsis, uh, kind of a classic distributive shock, but really is a mixed shock state. Causes of obstructive shock. Uh, pulmonary emboli, tension pneumothorax, so you fracture a rib, you puncture the lung, then I go and intubate you and start putting pre positive pressure. Uh, and it creates such a positive pressure in the chest that it blocks the return, the venous return. So that's a, a sign of a obstructive shock and pericardial effusion. <coughs> uh, my wife, who was, was my chief resident, if you can imagine what that's like, uh, <laughs> the only thing that would be worse is now your department head being your husband, I suppose. But uh, she, um, she works here in... She had a kid sent over the other day with, it was in shock with a presumed cardiomyopathy, big heart on chest x-ray, so they were thinking about a cardiomyopathy, a JVD, they had given the kid some fluid, try to get more cardiac output, put the ultrasound on his chest, and he had a you know, rim of fluid around his heart about that big. He had gotten a viral uh, infection, but it gave him pericarditis and an effusion, so it was actually quite simple to drain it. He was going home in two days instead of hitting the transplant list, which is what is often the case for cardi cardiomyopathy. So how do you differentiate different shock states? This is really, number one is really charging. How do, can you tell if somebody has a low heart rate? Take a pulse, right? I mean, that's pretty straightforward. How do you tell if somebody has low preload? <coughs> you can use things like echo or look at uh, chest x-ray and EKG. Not really going to help you a whole heck of a lot. But give a fluid challenge. <coughs> Excuse me. Contractility. How do I tell if the myocardium's uh, not contracting? Uh, and actually, that got shifted down. <coughs> uh, 
Um, so Echo will tell me if somebody has a contractility problem. They will also tell me if they have a preload problem. Sure. <coughs> fluid challenge. That's a good, very good question. So a fluid challenge is something, when I see a patient, I think they're in hypovolemic shock. And it's really, I always think everybody's in hypovolemic shock until uh, proven otherwise. I give them two liters of normal saline, hard and fast, through the intravenous. It is diagnostic and therapeutic. That is, I give them the fluid challenge and I'm looking for the response. So if I think that they have a, a preload problem, I'll give them preload and see if I fix the problem. And we do a lot of things like that in medicine. If I think it's this problem, let's try this drug, see if it makes it better. If it didn't make it better, that wasn't the problem. So a fluid challenge is what we always start with in our shock. After we take the pulse, we do a fluid challenge, two liters, hard and fast, and if the, if the blood pressure comes right up, and the patient starts uh, talking to you, that was a, a hypovolemic shock. Kind of clear? Um, thank you for stopping me. That was, that was one I, I needed to address. So if I think there's a contractility problem, if it's EKG, uh, chest x-ray, echo, I'll see a big dilated heart if the heart's not contracting. Echo is an ultrasound of the heart, I, I think people will understand. EKG, looking for the MI. Might get a mixed venous oxygen saturation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Systemic vascular resistance, uh, if I think there's a problem there, I do the same exact thing as the fluid challenge. I usually give them the fluid challenge first, they didn't get better, and then I'll give them a vasopressor challenge. So now I'm giving them a, something to tighten up the arterioles, and I want to see a positive effect. Now, you can't look at blood pressure. You have to look at cardiac output, and I'm going to show you how in just a little bit. And then obstructive shock is often a diagnosis, diagnosis of exclusion. Now this is, you know, third year EM resident challenged kind of, you know, what kind of shock is it? Um, what are you going to do for it? What's the treatment next? How are you going to measure these things? But I wanted to give you at least some flavor of what I'm thinking. Heart rate, uh, preload, I give them the fluid challenge. Contractility, I'm looking for the MI. I'm looking for a dilated heart on the, uh, on the ultrasound. And uh, systemic vascular resistance, if I do that, I'm given a drug, checking for the response, I'm given something to tighten up the arterioles. I'm not going to ask you a question about this, uh, about that. So this, you're going to get the Fick equation here, uh, the greatest equation ever invented from my standpoint. And this is not your Fick equation class. I think that'll come some other time. But this is the primer. This is going to make simple what the next instructor is going to make uh, hard, but it really is simple. Cardiac output's about 5 liters. There's about 200 mLs of oxygen on each liter of blood normally. My blood, your blood, our blood. Uh, it's about 200 mLs. So how much, 5 liters, 200 mLs, how many liters of oxygen are we delivering a minute to the tissues? One liter, great. We're using up about 250 mLs of oxygen per minute. That's kind of basal metabolic rate. How much is left? Well, let's jump over to the engineering school. They'll get this one, right? Yeah. It's about 150 mLs per, uh, per liter, which is a saturation, because this is 100% saturated basically here, the hemoglobin, of 75%. Uh, Assuming normal cardiac output, normal oxygen carrying capacity, and normal 
demand. Let me just move this one slide forward and try to do this a second time because I get so disappointed when fourth year medical students don't understand um, uh, the Fick equation. So here's our tripod again. Contents about 200 mLs per liter. Cardiac output's about five liters per minute. Delivered oxygen, DO2, about 1,000 mLs per minute. Everybody's with me there. <clears throat> Metabolic demand, 250. That means I'm extracting 25%. I'm leaving 75% of the hemoglobin saturated. SVO2 is 75%. So raise your hands for this one. If cardiac output, metabolic demand stays the same, O2 content stays the same. Even if you're in cardiac arrest, your O2 content doesn't particularly change. All of a sudden, with a decrease to 2.5 liters per minute, what would your SVO2 be? Well, you've got to raise your hand. It's like Jeopardy. Who said that? All right. What size T-shirt do you take? Oh, I shouldn't have asked that. Did I? Is that a, if you're a guy, I could ask that. I can't ask it to a girl. All right. One, <laughs> And if you're a guy and you took a small, you'd say extra large. <laughs> oh, close enough. All right, good. Exactly, 50%. SPO2 is 50%. That's actually the good one, too, long sleeve. Uh, very good. So if we go down to 2.5 liters, comes out same exact. We're, we're extracting the same amount, but now you're going to have 50% of it left. That's what happens in shock. That's why the oxygen concentration decreases. Now, I don't know if you did the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve, but your partial pressure of oxygen would go from 40, which is what the partial pressure is uh, at 75%, to the P50 of hemoglobin, which is about 27. So that's the best part about this. I can use this clinically. I've got a tool. So if I want to measure um, cardiac output, and see if my therapy, my vasopressor therapy, helped my patient, I measure the mixed venous oxygen saturation before and after. And if, I don't, if it goes down, then I know I'm on the bad part of the curve and I'm hurting the patient. If it stays the same, I usually keep the drug going because I like high blood pressure better than low blood pressure, just to keep the nurses from calling you. Um, but if it goes up, then I know I improve the patient by improving coronary perfusion. So, low heart rate, problem treatment, low heart rate. What do you want to get, what do you want to do for the patient? Make the heart rate faster, I'm sure you're all thinking that. Electricity, pacemakers, external, internal, or drugs. Atropine would be a classic one. Low preload, fluid challenge, give fluid. Heart rate's okay, next thing I'm thinking, gotta be loaded. The heart can't do a thing if you don't load it, if you don't fill the tank. Why did that lady at the ICU at the other hospital on max presses, squeezing arterials, choking her tissue off from the vital oxygen that it needed, why, didn't she, why did she have a blood pressure of 70? They didn't fill the tank. You've got to fill the tank. If you don't fill the tank, you can't get blood pressure. So her heart rate was fine, inadequate preload. Two liters of saline. Uh, blood pressure came up to 110 in that patient. Uh, two more liters, they took her off vasopressors. Didn't even need them, uh, just needed fluid. Uh, poor contractility, reperfusion. I see a patient with an MI, poor contractility, 
they get, I got to get them to the cath lab or thrombolyze them, open up the artery that is uh, blocking the flow of blood to a distribution of myocardium just to improve the contractility. Do a time check here. I get uh, 12.30, is that when I'm done? And everybody wants me to be done quicker than that? 12.20, 12.20. okay. <laughs> the uh, poor country, the low SVR, we use vasopressors, if, but we've got to check to make sure the patient improved. And the only way we can do it is by checking cardiac output. Best way to do that is take a central line, put it into the neck, uh, down into the R, you know, depending on what catheter you're using, down uh, towards the RA, draw a mixed sample, and see what happens before and after. Uh, we now have a device that we can do this, we believe, or we're not quite convinced yet, uh, non-invasively by measuring tissue oxygen concentration because that's what it's all about. Got to improve the tissue oxygen concentration. And obstruction, you got to remove the obstruction. I just want to hammer this point home in your first year of medical school because this is what people still confuse. You can start, you start messing with SVR, you can change a low resistance system with good flow to a high resistance system with low flow, but pressure is the same. When you start messing with SVR, you don't look at blood pressure anymore, you're looking at the wrong thing because you're just shifting the resistance curve here. You've got to start to look at some other measure of the patient's cardiac output, tissue oxygenation being the best because it takes all parts of the tripod, the metabolic demand and the oxygen delivered into account to tell you what the tissue oxygenation is and that's what you're trying to achieve. That makes sense? Right? So if you give me my choice, uh, if I get really sick with sepsis and you say I can give you a low blood pressure with, uh, I can give you a high blood pressure with low flow, or I can leave you a low blood pressure alone but maintain high flow, make it easy for the heart, I'll take the high flow, low pressure. So if you give a drug that increases SVR, uh, did I just answer this? Uh, okay, first one to raise their hand. There you go. What's the answer to this? You <laughs> Oh, you said I was going to do it just for giving. <laughs> what is it? And how would you do that? Uh, and, and get what measure? A what? <laughs> Oxygenation, SVO2. Right here. I take a t-shirt anyways, just for embarrassing yourself. Um, <laughs> I got a five to get rid of here. So this is um, our Waterloo aircraft. Uh, it's uh, A-Star. Are these guys outstanding in their field or what? It's an Iowa joke, I'm told. Uh, so this is our A-Star. This is our smaller of our two aircrafts. Uh, we have Air Care 1 here, Air Care 2 in Waterloo. And uh, lots of times the Air Care 1 crew makes fun of the A-Star, the little A-Star. And the cute little A-Star, they call it, when it comes in. So this is the same exact aircraft just last year. A-Star 350, not the same one, not this is an air care, but obviously the same model, uh, which just reached the holy grail of helicopter flying and touched the top of Mount Everest. There is no greater, well, I guess you could fly a helicopter to a moon, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, what else are you going to do as a helicopter pilot? Can you imagine uh, Heimlich Dietrich, I think his name was, uh, that, but a helicopter has now touched Mount Everest, which just goes to show you it's not the size of your helicopter, it's what you do with it. Right? <laughs> All right, so let's get into some cases a little bit here. 75-year-old gentleman arrives in the emergency department, complains of lightheadedness. 
the patient's wife says he is confused. His only medication is ibuprofen, which you saw him in the ER the week before and prescribed for his knee pain. Uh, vital signs, uh, heart rate of 130, blood pressure 80 over 40, um, uh, respiratory rate of 30, uh, and a temp of 37 degrees. And you can't pick up his oxygen saturation. This is arterial oxygen saturation, not tissue oxygen saturation. There's only a couple of places in the country doing that, and, uh, and we're one of them, the RICU in our, our emergency department. So the patient's in shock. What do you want to do? Oh my god. That is, I wish I had a hundred t-shirts to do <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, what primary determinant of blood pressure is low? What type of shock is this and how do you want to treat? Uh, so the heart rate was fine, 130. In fact, he was tachycardic. So we moved to the next thing. What's his preload? What's his volume status? And uh, so you want to give him flu fluid. You don't tell the nurse to give him two liters of fluid and let you know when it's in. You put two IVs in them, you sit there, you squeeze the bags, you watch the physiologic response. Because the fluid's going to go in, and you're going to see a response, and it's going to be the key to your diagnosis, and then it's going to kind of leak out into the tissues, and you're going to end up back where you were. Or, if there's a continued leak, you're not going to see that this was clearly a hypovolemic uh, shock. So, um, this is what we do for the sore throats. On the monitor, stretcher, O2, lots of oxygen. Uh, everybody that walks into an ER gets that. Uh, listen to his heart and lungs, IV access, fluid challenge, very good. Heart rate decreases to 90, blood pressure comes up, and his mental status clears. What kind of shock did he have? Hypovolemic. Uh, smartest first year class ever. <laughs> the 75 uh, year old gentleman arrives in the emergency department, same guy, same guy. Right? And if you don't think emergency, so are a chronic disease, let me tell you, they are. I see the same patients over and over again. Uh, same students on you know, game day from the game day before that got tasers or something. Uh, they don't remember me, I remember them. So same guy, 75 years old. Uh, same vital signs, except for this time his temperature's 35. What do you want to do? In the stretcher, on the monitor, lots of oxygen. What? Oxygen's like the best drug in the world. Don't ever be chintzy about the amount of oxygen you give somebody. Uh, lots of oxygen. Listen to his heart and lungs. They're clear. IV axis, and you already said it, you give him your fluid challenge. A uh, thousand in, you do it yourself. It's diagnostic and it's therapeutic. But you're squeezing the bag, you watch it go in. Heart rate just decreases a little bit. Blood pressure is 85 over 45. Oh, that's not really. And there's no change in his mental status. Of what kind of shock? Uh, somebody say it loud. Distributive. Now, how do you know this isn't cardiogenic? His heart rate's okay. I'll give you that. How do you know it's not a contractility issue? This is where it starts getting into the finesse. I've got to understand the physiology. If you give me this patient, I can't guarantee you it's a distributive shock uh, yet. So I need some more information uh, on it. I know his heart rate's okay. I gave him some volume. <coughs> uh, and uh, his systemic vascular resistance versus contractility is the issue. I need more information. So nice, narrow, normal heart. Normal lung feels. No congestive heart failure or anything. Huh. So I think. Uh, I think this is distributive shock. Uh, well, at least it's looking more like that. 
And so his hematocrit, his oxygen carrying capacity is okay. He's not having an MI, his EKG is all right. I put a, a jugular line in of, and I measure the SVO2, it's 50%. Cardiac output's still down after that fluid. Maybe I've given him two liters by now. And so this is really smelling like distributive shock. Uh, but you really don't know sometimes. And then the other thing is with, with sepsis and other things, you, you have to watch the physiology. It's not like, oh, it's distributive shock. Go ahead and put him on dopamine and uh, give me a call later. Like, you know, you, you, this is an experiment, so to speak, and you've got to know which numbers to wa watch in terms of our outcome. So you give him a, a vasopressor challenge. Think of it as a challenge. You recheck his mixed venous uh, sample, and then comes right back up. I would hope you'd have at least two, three liters of fluid in by this time. Got to fill the tank before you start messing with SVR. So what kind of shock is this? She said, that, that was a t-shirt question, by the way. I don't remember who got that. Am I ignoring this side of the room? Is that not Might be because I'm a, a, a righty. So it's distributive shock from sepsis. You know, it comes in for his GI bleed. He gets a gram-negative infection, and uh, you know the bacteria get into his blood, and he, and he gets a septic shock. About ten minutes. Uh, it would be plenty of time. So, I'm telling you, once you're in the hospital for one thing. You're coming back, especially if you're 70. Everybody ends up in the ER at some point. Uh, so 75 years old, uh, same vital sign, same guy. He didn't even want to see you again. Uh, you would give him the ibuprofen, which gave him the GI bleed because ibuprofen shouldn't be the first-line therapy for, for uh, knee pain and arthritis. So you gave him an ulcer from it. And uh, now here he is, back again. He's had a GI bleed. He's had a gram-negative infection, uh, sepsis, and now he's back again. Uh, what do you want to do? Yeah, don't even bother. <laughs> right. Okay, so you gave him the leader, and you didn't get much. So what kind of shock is this? Well, there's only four kinds, so you could start to guess between the... I wouldn't go back to hypovolemia, would I? Uh, but you need more information. So he's got plenty of oxygen carrying capacity. He's got a low cardiac output uh, with a SAT of 50%. But the central venous pressure is very high. So somebody on this side of the room, raise your hand, tell me what kind of shock this is. Obstructive. Obstructive. From what? I, I'm, I'm looking at you. you can... No, it wasn't you? Who was it? Who said obstructive? Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, so from what? from a clot, because he didn't get his DVT prophylaxis. This couldn't happen in RICU. He didn't get his DVT prophylaxis, and he um, developed a clot, and so he, now he's back in. All right, so I got two T-shirts two left. Just so I even it off there. I'm going to get one of those elastic things next year. Uh, close range. So there's a chest X-ray. looked OK. We called it obstructive. And there's his uh, CT with the pulmonary artery here, um, large clot, clot, uh, obstructing flow. What do you want to do for him? I don't have any T-shirts, so I guess you can shout at this point. So, so this is a real case, and I'll tell you what the outcome was. Uh, so uh, and, and it was, I didn't really see the guy three times. He, he had just um, 
he had just had a GI bleed in the hospital, came back in and had this clot. And so now he's dying. I'm telling you, I've got him tanked up with fluid. Uh, I have a couple of choices. One, I called CT surgery and said, could you come in and do a primary embolectomy? Can you come in and surgically remove this thing? And uh, they, they couldn't come in. You know, it was uh, bridge night or something. I don't know what it was. <laughs> but it's, uh, sometimes you're on an island in the ER. So my other option uh, really was to um, thrombolysin. Give him a clock-busting drug six weeks after his massive GI bleed. Uh, I, I got to tell you, sometimes the janitor walks by in the ER and says, that guy's going to die. And I mean, it, th this is the way he looked. And so what do you do when you get that kind of dilemma and with a patient? And you know, he was still talking. His family was there. You talk to them, right? I said, listen, this is going to kill you. Um, I got to give you a drug. To, I think I should give you a drug to break this clot apart. And if you start to bleed, I'm an expert in taking care of bleeding. And, uh, you know, it's a huge risk. But I think you're going to die if I don't do this. Uh, but I want you to be part of that decision-making process. And as you move forward in your career, when you have these real dilemmas, you go to the patient bedside and you say, this is what I'm thinking. This is what's going on. Uh, you know, at least empower them. Now, sometimes empowerment for the patient is giving you whatever you say, doc. And when they want you to make the decision, make the decision because they've, that's what they want. And sometimes, uh, I do this with chest pain all the time. I say, listen, your EKG is normal, but you got some risk factors, it's kind of bad pain. You got about one in 2,000 chance of walking out of here and dying, one in 10, I always exaggerate, it's really one in 10,000 if you go home, so I want to keep you overnight. And they say, one in 2,000? You know my lifestyle? I'll take that odds, and they leave. You empower them, let them be part of the decision-making process. And uh, it, it really makes uh, uh, medicine nicer in some ways, so you're not out there alone. The patient and the family are part of the process with you. So I did thrombolyse him. Uh, I don't think I have his uh, picture here. We're going to skip that one. Whoop. And uh, the best outcome possible happened. One, in the ER, he didn't bleed. And uh, and he just got better. I mean, the, the, clot, the clot was broken up by the TPA, and he got better. But even better than that, I was with my boss at a dinner, and this is when I was like just a junior faculty member, and this guy comes up to me in a restaurant, and he said, Doc, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, you saved my life. And he sent a bottle of wine over to the table. And uh, sometimes that's all what it's all about, and it really makes it worth it. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> I felt good, but after the wine, I felt great. Man. So. Well, as I said, this really is one of the, the favorite things I get to do all year. And if I can help in any way as you're moving forward, I love physiology. I love talking about shock, oxygen transport. Please be feel free to uh, look up my email. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs>